Well, our message tonight continues a series that was started last week by Abner on the miracle of Christmas, the miracle of Christmas. Abner began for us last week by looking at Philippians chapter 2, and this evening we're going to continue in that series by looking at Hebrews chapter 2. And so if you have your Bible, you can take the Word of God, your copy of Scripture, and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, the miracle of Christmas. And because this is a Christmas-themed message, I felt compelled to share one of my favorite stories from church history, a story that relates to Christmas and also relates directly to the theme that we will be looking at this evening from Hebrews chapter 2. It's a story that many of you have probably heard before, but it's one that I love, and you'll see how it relates in just a moment. It's a story about Santa Claus, which might be a little bit unexpected. When my kids would ask me what I thought about Santa Claus, this is when they were young, they would ask me, you know, Dad, is Santa Claus real? And of course, I would answer, no, Santa Claus is not real because the version of Santa Claus that they were thinking of in that moment is a vision of an overweight Scandinavian man with a white beard and a red hat getting in a magic sleigh and being pulled by flying caribou, defying physics, going down chimneys he has no business going down, and visiting homes all across the world in less than 24 hours. That version of Santa Claus, spoiler alert, does not exist. But then I would go on in talking to my children about Santa Claus to say, you know, there was a fourth century pastor named Nicholas, Nicholas of Myra. Myra is in modern day Turkey, Asia Minor at the time. And Nicholas was known for his generosity and gift giving. And over time, the Roman Catholic Church canonized him as a saint, and he became known as Saint Nicholas. And then the Dutch adopted him as their patron saint of sailing, and in Dutch, Saint Nicholas sounds something like Sinterklaas. And when you bring that Dutch version of Saint Nicholas into English, you get Santa Claus. So in that sense, there was a historical figure that has been completely corrupted by contemporary culture. He was not an overweight Scandinavian bearded man. He was instead a fourth century pastor from modern day Turkey. And then, having explained all of that, still hopefully keeping my children's attention at that point, I would tell them my favorite Santa Claus story. It's a story that takes place at the Council of Nicaea and roughly 300 years after the day of Pentecost in the year 325. There was a false teacher named Arius who had arisen in Alexandria, Egypt, and Arius was denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Much like a modern Jehovah's Witness, Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, that he, the Son of God, was not co-eternal or co-equal with the Father. And this kind of heresy had to be stopped. 
And so in the year 325, Emperor Constantine convened a council near Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, in a city called Nicaea. And there, 318 of the senior pastors from throughout the Roman Empire, along with their elders and deacons, all came. I think of it like a 4th century shepherds conference. And the issue at stake was the doctrine of the deity of Christ. That council overwhelmingly affirmed what the scripture clearly teaches, that Jesus Christ is co-eternal, co-essential, and co-equal with the Father, that he is God, very God, the second member of the Trinity. But there was a moment at the beginning of that council when Arius first stood up to speak and he first began to utter these words of blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ. And there among those senior pastors was Nicholas of Myra. And hearing Arius defame Christ, Nicholas became indignant and he stood to his feet And he walked forward in that solemn assembly, totally broke protocol, came to the front where Constantine the emperor and all of the dignitaries and all of these pastors and elders and others were all watching what was going to happen. And Nicholas faced Arius, he squared up to him, looked him in the eye, and Santa Claus smacked Arius in the face. (laughs) Now, we don't condone violence, but you have to admit it's pretty compelling to consider the fact that the real Santa Claus worshiped Jesus and that he was so zealous for the deity of Christ and for the honor of our Lord that he wasn't going to let the protocol of that assembly or even the dignity of the emperor stop him from rebuking a heretic face to face. Now, Constantine couldn't let that kind of disruption go unpunished, and Nicholas was actually thrown in jail for a short period of time as a punishment but I love that story. He didn't just put coal in his stocking. He rebuked him publicly. And the takeaway from that is not that we should run around actually engaging in any sort of physical altercation. The takeaway from that, I was always careful to make sure I included that when I told this story to my kids. The takeaway from that is that we ought to be zealous for the honor and glory for the reputation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to be zealous for the truth about who he is, that he is indeed God, very God, that he is the second member of the Trinity, that he is co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and the Spirit. That was a doctrine that Nicholas was zealous to defend, and so should we. 
Now, I tell that story in part because this is a Christmas message, and any time I get the opportunity to tell fun stories from church history like that, I want to take that opportunity. But more so, I tell that story because the doctrine of the deity of Christ is directly connected to our theme for this evening, and our theme for this evening is the incarnation. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus that... God the Son took on flesh and became a man so that as a man he might live a perfect life and die as a substitute for sinful men and women, reconciling a redeemed humanity to God. The incarnation is at the heart of Christianity, and it is at the heart of Christmas And in fact, as we will see this evening, it is the true miracle of Christmas that God became man. Our society, of course, is very good at making Christmas about anything other than Christ. From a non-Christian perspective, Christmas is not about Christ at all. It's about shopping. It's about gifts. It's about food and celebration and music and movies. And while those things can certainly be fun, for us as believers, Christmas is something much more wonderful than any store discount or any fruitcake or any fairy tale on film. Christmas is about something historical, about something real, about something miraculous, something salvific. And it is when we remember the birth of our Savior, the reality that the eternal second member of the Trinity took on flesh and dwelt among us, that we come to understand and appreciate the heart of Christmas and worship and glorify him as a result. This is why... In Matthew, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's why Isaiah, 700 years before he came, said that he would be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. And though we might regard any birth as something of a miracle, there is obviously something infinitely different about the birth of Jesus And while we may look at some of the amazing events that surrounded his birth, whether it was the resounding of the angels or the worship of the shepherds or the appearance of a star in the east and the coming of the magi, all things that Mary treasured in her heart, the real miracle of Christmas is that God became man. God, very God, took on flesh so that as a man, he might rescue and redeem fallen humanity. The Apostle John in John chapter 1, verse 1, says it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. And then verse 14 of that same chapter, And the Word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
What an incomprehensible miracle that God, second member of the Trinity, God the Son, would take on flesh and become a man, born as a baby, born in a stable, living a perfect life, and then dying on a cross for crimes he did not commit as a substitute for sinners, bearing the penalty for sins of which he was not guilty. It's an amazing thing for us to consider the miracle of the incarnation. And tonight, what I want us to consider is the importance of this incredible miracle. When we speak about the miracle of Christmas, which is the title of this particular series, we are specifically referring to the miracle of the incarnation itself. It is what Abner talked to us about last week from Philippians chapter 2, that God the Son emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, that he humbled himself, was, as Abner explained, subtraction through addition, that he took on the weakness of human flesh, the frailty of humanity, that God the Son became the Son of Man. That is the what of the incarnation But this raises another important question, and that is the question, why? Why was the incarnation necessary? Was there some other means by which God could redeem fallen humanity? Was there some other way of salvation? Could there have been some alternative plan? Was the incarnation really essential Well, the answer that the author of Hebrews gives us here in Hebrews chapter 2 is yes. Yes, the incarnation was essential. Our passage is in verse 9 all the way to the end of chapter 2, so verses 9 through 18. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering." For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, 
and might free those who through fear of death were slaves, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in all or in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Did you notice there in this passage, verse 17, that the author says that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. In other words, to the question of was the incarnation necessary, the author of Hebrews says that it was essential. It was obligatory. It was absolutely necessary. The Son of God had to become a man in order to save fallen men. There was no other way. This passage is probably not a passage that you would normally associate with Christmas. And yet you'll notice that the incarnation is highlighted throughout these verses. In verse 9, we see that he had to be a little lower than the angels for a time, a reference to his incarnation. Verse 14 and 15, he had to partake of flesh and blood a reference to his incarnation. And there in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren. Again, a reference to the incarnation. This passage is all about the reality of the incarnation and its implications. And of course, this would have been a great encouragement and a great comfort to the recipients of this letter. The book of Hebrews was written in the late 60s of the first century. It was written by an unknown author, clearly an associate of the Apostle Paul, if not the Apostle Paul himself. We know that because the author references Timothy in chapter 13. And the author writes to a group of Jewish believers, Hebrew Christians, and these Jewish believers were tempted to abandon the Christian faith and return to Judaism because of persecution, specifically persecution from Emperor Nero. Nero, in the year 64, began persecuting Christians, especially in Rome and the surrounding areas, and that persecution lasted for roughly five years until Nero's death in A.D. 68. And so the temptation for some of these Jewish believers was, if I just go back to Judaism, I can avoid the persecution. And the author of Hebrews hits that head on throughout this letter, explaining to them that to go back to Judaism would be to go back to a system that cannot save, and to walk away from Christ would be to walk away to one's own eternal peril. The author throughout this entire letter shows that Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the Christ. And in these opening chapters, he establishes the reality that Jesus is superior. 
superior to Moses, superior to angels, superior to the Old Testament priesthood, superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And that is because the Lord Jesus is the King of Kings and also our great high priest, the one who is both the sacrifice and the priest who offers it. And so the author of Hebrews emphasizes that salvation is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he offers warnings throughout this letter to his readers that if they were to abandon Christ, they would abandon him to their own eternal peril. And here in chapter 2 specifically, he emphasizes the implications of the incarnation and underscores the importance of the incarnation. For our purposes this evening, I want to highlight in this text three reasons why the incarnation is so vitally important. Three reasons why the incarnation is so vitally important and we could even ask of the text or approach this text by asking the question, what if the incarnation had never happened? What if Jesus had never been born? What if Christmas had never taken place? What would our reality be if God the Son had never become the Son of Man? In 1943... There was a man named Philip Van Doren Stern who wrote a short story that he was hoping to have published. It was less than 5,000 words long. He couldn't find anybody to publish it, and so for Christmas that year, he printed 200 copies of his short story, and he distributed them to family and to friends. Well, one of those copies of that short story actually made its way to Hollywood, where it came into the hands of actor Cary Grant, who was very interested in it and thought maybe the short story would make a good screenplay. Eventually, the short story was sold to Frank Capra's production studio, and instead of starring Cary Grant, it ended up starring Jimmy Stewart. It debuted in 1946 under a different title. The title was It's a Wonderful Life. Van Doren Stern's original title was The Greatest Gift. What's interesting is in 1945, the year before it debuted as a film, it actually did get published. It got published not in book form, but published actually in Good Housekeeping magazine. And there it had a different title. That title was The Man Who Was Never Born. The Man Who Was Never Born. And of course, I assume that most of you are familiar with the plot of that short story, which of course became that famous film, that classic film, about a man named George who was desperate and despondent and didn't think that he should have ever been born. He says he wished he had never been born, and then an angel named Clarence shows up, and in order to get his wings, Clarence has to help George realize that his life actually mattered to the people of Bedford Falls. You know the story. It's full of bad theology. <laughs> well, in an infinitely greater sense, 
I think we can ask the question this evening, what if Jesus had never been born? What would the implications of that be, not just for Bedford Falls, but for the entire world, if the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal with the Father, if he had not stepped out of heaven and condescended to become a man, humbling himself to be born in a stable in Bethlehem and to live a perfect life and to die on a cross? What if that had never happened? What would our reality be if Christmas had never taken place? Well, the author of Hebrews answers that for us. He gives us three reasons in answer to that question, three reasons why the incarnation is so vitally important I mentioned the incarnation is repeated three times in this text or references to it, verse 9, verse 14, verse 17. And the implications of that great theological reality are everywhere present in this passage. And so again, three reasons why the incarnation is so important. Number one, without the incarnation there would be no salvation from sin. Without the incarnation, there would be no salvation from sin. This is in verses 9 to 13. In other words, if Jesus had never been born, then we would all be lost in our sins. Notice in verse 9 that the author of Hebrews is speaking about Christ's incarnation. He says there at the beginning that we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It's a reference to Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, where David refers to humanity as that which has been created a little lower than the angels. And in fact, back up in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews has cited that very verse. And so for Jesus to have been made for a short time lower than the angels is a reference to his condescension, his humiliation, his kenosis, his incarnation. For a short time, the Son of God left heaven and took on flesh and dwelt on this earth. Now as the verse goes on to explain, after Christ's death and resurrection, he returned triumphant to heaven. So verse 9 makes that point clear in the next phrase, that because of his faithful suffering and death, he was crowned with glory and honor. And so we have both the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus in view in this verse. But the question we're asking of our text is why Why was it necessary for him to come? Well, the end of verse 9 tells us, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And that really is the point, isn't it? It is not a cliche to say that Jesus was born in order to die. Or to point out that the only reason 
Easter is a celebration is because Christmas happened. Jesus came to die. He came so that through his death, he might give life to everyone who believes in him. And this is, of course, the most profound expression of the grace of God, which is why the author of Hebrews mentions the grace of God right there in the middle of verse 9, that it is not because we deserve this, but because God in his unmerited favor towards us and in his great love sent his Son. This was all possible because... The second member of the Trinity took on flesh and became a man, a little lower than the angels for a short period of time, living as a man here on this earth. The author of Hebrews continues to build on the benefits of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. In verse 10, we see that through his substitutionary death, he brought salvation to God's elect. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that's a reference to God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, the word for perfect there can also mean complete. As the Son of God, Christ was already perfect, of course, and that perfection was evidenced in his humanity as he perfectly obeyed the law of God in everything that he did. He was in perfect submission to the Father, even unto death, And through his death, Christ perfectly and completely accomplished the redemptive purposes of God, whereby he became the perfect high priest who cleanses the sins of God's people through his own infinite sacrifice. It is through his death there in verse 10 that he brings many sons to glory. Those whom God elected in eternity past are brought to glory through the work of Christ. The one unique son of God, I love this emphasis here, came down from heaven to earth so that the many sons and daughters of Adam could become in Christ the second Adam, children of God, brought into the family by the Lord Jesus himself. And so verse 10 speaks not only of our election and of our justification, but also of our adoption into the family of God and our glorification. And those themes continue in verses 11 to 13. Here we see in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies, a reference to Jesus, and those who are sanctified, a reference to believers, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And here the emphasis is on sanctification, both positional and progressive, and then on adoption, that we have been given entrance into the family of God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We are, as Romans 8, 17 says, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ because Christ himself has invited us and welcomed us to share in his inheritance. Christ is the son by divine right because of who he is as God, very God. We are children by adoption, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are and entirely because of what the God-man accomplished on our behalf. This is at the heart of the incarnation. Now, the Old Testament quotations there are from Psalm 22, verse 22, and from Isaiah 8, 17 to 18. And the author of Hebrews cites the Old Testament frequently because his audience is Jewish believers, and so he's using portions of Old Testament scripture with which his readers would have been immediately familiar And yet these Old Testament passages echo this great truth that those who were far off have been brought near, that those who were enemies are now friends, and even more so that we who were children of wrath are now, through Christ, children of God. And so in verse 9, we see forgiveness and justification because of the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf And in verse 10, we see election and the promise of glory and entrance into the family of God because of what Christ did on our behalf. And then verses 11 to 13, we see our sanctification, again, both positional and progressive, and our inclusion as those who are children of God in his family, all because of what Christ did on our behalf. And so, verse 9 He had to become for a little while lower than the angels in order to accomplish our election, our justification, our sanctification, our adoption, our glorification. In other words, if Jesus had never come, there would be no salvation from sin. We would still be dead in our sins still alienated from God, hopeless, helpless, and headed for hell. So the incarnation is vitally important. The reality that God became man is central to our Christian faith and central to our celebration of Christmas. And it is so significant because, first of all, if it had not happened, there would be no salvation. That brings us to a second reason why the incarnation matters. Without the miracle of the incarnation, there would be no victory over death. There would be no victory over death. This is in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, Since the children, that's human beings, share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, himself likewise also partook of the same, that's the incarnation, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might, verse 15, free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, Christ had to come into this world 
God, very God, the second member of the Trinity, took on flesh and became a man so that he might live as a man and die on a cross and then rise from the dead so that those who have put their faith and hope in him might also have the promise of eternal life. I did an internet search today for average number of deaths per year. It's not a normal Google search that I would do, but it was interesting. According to the internet, or at least the one source that I found, 166,000 people die every day. 166,000 people, that's 116 deaths per minute. Nearly 120 people every minute are entering eternity, which is almost two per second. Now, just for the sake of comparison, I also Googled the population of Burbank, which happens to have 105,000 people, according to the 2021 census. That means that every day, one and a half times the population of Burbank are entering eternity. They are entering, as the author of Hebrews will say later in this letter, they are entering into the judgment. It is appointed for men once to die, and then comes judgment. It's funny how... In spite of the fact that death is inevitable, nobody wants to talk about it or think about it, at least not in our world. And that's because our world fears death. And of course, those who live apart from the Lord Jesus Christ have no hope and therefore they are right to fear death. But as believers, we do not fear death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death has been defeated at the cross. The sting of death, the threat of death has been removed in Christ. And so Paul could tell the Philippians in Philippians 1:21, to live is Christ and to die is gain because to die is to be with Christ. The emphasis here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, again, is on our Lord's incarnation. He partook of flesh and blood. He became a real human being. And he did this in order to save sinful men from the deadly consequences of their sin. Men had a debt that only men could pay a debt of sin, the consequences for which is physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. And yet men had no ability to pay that debt. Only God had the ability to pay the debt, but only man had the responsibility to pay the debt. And so God became man so that as man, he might represent men and as God, he might fulfill that which is required. That's the miracle of the incarnation. He became like us, yet without sin, that he might save us from the consequences of our sin. His incarnation culminated in his crucifixion and resurrection. 
think it's interesting that the author of Hebrews here points out that without Christ, we would be slaves to the fear of death. Galatians chapter four, verse four tells us that as unbelievers, we were slaves to this world. Galatians 4, 8, that we were slaves to our own idolatry. Romans 6, 17, that we were slaves to sin. Romans 8, 15, that we were slaves to fear. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15, we were slaves to the fear of death and under the thumb of the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Death for the unbeliever is a thing to fear, not simply because it is unknown, but because the human conscience understands that there is judgment coming after death. But through the cross, the fear of death has been removed. It's been replaced with a confident faith that sees death not as the end, but as the beginning of eternal life. And this is all possible because the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and took on flesh and became a man being born as a baby in that manger in Bethlehem. Just last week, had the opportunity to attend a memorial service here at Grace Church of one of our beloved saints, a dear lady who went home to be with the Lord. Isn't it amazing how different it is to attend the memorial service of a believer than to attend the memorial service of an unbeliever? To attend the funeral or memorial service of a believer is to celebrate not just their life here, but to celebrate true life, the reality that they are in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is to celebrate what Paul looked forward to in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, that now we see dimly as in a glass dimly, he says, but then we will see face to face. And it was just a, a joy to hear the testimony of her life, which was a resounding testimony of pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to resonate with the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that we do not grieve as the rest of the world that has no hope. Well, how is it possible for us to have that hope? How is it that we have no fear in death? It is only because of the reality of the incarnation. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ, God, very God, became a man and as a man died and then conquered death so that those who believe in him will be given eternal Life. Well, we come then to a third reason why the incarnation is so important, why Christmas matters. In verses 9 to 13, we saw that if 
Christ had not come, without the incarnation, there would be no salvation from sin. In verses 14 and 15, without the incarnation, there would be no victory over death. We would still be enslaved to the fear of death, and rightly so, because we would have no hope. And now thirdly, without the incarnation, there would be no mediator between God and man. Without the incarnation, there would be no mediator between God and man. This is in verses 16 to 18. Look at verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I think it's so interesting to to contemplate the reality that there is no Christmas for angels. Now, I realize that the angels are central to the Christmas story. It was the angel Gabriel who came to Mary and announced that Jesus was going to be born. And the angel Gabriel also appeared to Joseph. It was the angels who came and declared glory to God in the highest with the shepherds. So I understand that angels are essential to the story, that they're a key figure in your nativity set. But the reality is, what verse 16 is telling us, is that there is no Christmas for angels. Because what is Christmas? Christmas is the reality that God became a man. He took on flesh in order to redeem men. But God the Son never became an angel in order to redeem fallen angels. And even though there was once a great rebellion of angels such that one-third of the angelic host followed Lucifer in his rebellion, God the Son never took on angelic flesh or an angelic nature, better way to say that, in order to offer salvation to fallen angels. There is no gospel for fallen angels. There's no redemption. There's no plan of salvation. Now, there are, of course, holy angels, and holy angels will live in the presence of God forever. But for fallen angels, there is no forgiveness offered. There is no mediator between the demons and God. There's no substitute for them. There's no atonement, and therefore there's no hope. Now, how how all of the angels must have wondered and marveled at that first Christmas when God the Son was born as a baby boy and wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in that manger. I think this is probably part of why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12 that the gospel is something into which angels long to look because even though they can comprehend it intellectually, there is no equivalent experientially for fallen angels. 
And yet verse 16 goes on to say, but for the descendant of Abraham, there is help, there is hope, there is salvation because of the incarnation. That phrase, the descendant of Abraham, there in verse 16, would have been particularly comforting to the original readers of this letter because they were Jewish Christians. But I do think the author of Hebrews has more than just the physical descendants of Abraham in view, since Galatians 3.29 tells us that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are descendants of Abraham by faith. And so the point is that Christ then came to help those whom he would redeem, both Jew and Gentile, those who through faith in him have the hope of eternal life. But if he had not come, we would be just like the demons. Now notice verse 17 that the emphasis is again on his incarnation. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. He did this in order to save men, to lead them to glory, to become the perfect substitute for sin, to be the perfect high priest. The incarnation was not optional, but essential to God's redemptive purpose. Verse 17 continues, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A high priest was a mediator between God and the people of Israel. But of course, in the Old Testament, there never was a perfect high priest. The high priest represented the people, but he could never relate to God as God because no Old Testament high priest was divine. In order for there to be a perfect mediator, a perfect high priest, it had to be one who could relate to God as God and yet represent man as man, which is why the incarnation was so essential. The only way for there to be a true mediator is if that mediator were both truly God and truly man. And because... He is both God and man. The Lord Jesus can satisfy God's perfect standard and pay God's eternal penalty because he himself is the perfect and infinite sacrifice and also the great high priest. He relates to God as God and yet he sympathizes with us because he understands what it was to be a man. This is something that he continues, the author of Hebrews does, to explain in verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Author of Hebrews really continues the same thought two chapters later in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. These are familiar words, but he says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, even as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he took on flesh and became a man, living on this earth for those 30 years and experiencing all of life, even enduring levels of temptation that are far beyond what we can imagine and yet never falling prey or yielding to sin, finally being killed as the perfect sacrifice for sin, yet remaining completely obedient to his Father in everything. In light of all of that, Jesus Christ is both our perfect sacrifice and our great high priest. He is both substitute and mediator. And he can fill and fulfill that position perfectly because, again, he relates to God as God and he represents man as man. And so he is our sympathetic Savior. 1 John 2, 1, he is the advocate for us before the throne. He has opened for us access to the throne room of grace. We never need another priest because we have a perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. This then is the significance the miracle, the wonder of what we celebrate at Christmas. What is the miracle of Christmas? Well, it is the incarnation that God took on flesh and became a man. But what is the significance of that miracle? Why does that miracle matter? Why is the incarnation so important? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us Verses 9 to 13, if the incarnation had never happened, there would be no salvation from sin. Verses 14 and 15, if the incarnation had never happened, we would still be slaves to the fear of death. Verses 16 to 18, if the incarnation had never taken place, there would be no mediator between God and man. Verses 9 to 13, we would have no substitute. Verses 14 and 15, we would have no deliverer. Verses 16 to 18, we would have no representative in the court of heaven. So why is the incarnation important? Because if Jesus had never been born we would never be born again. And if we were never born again, we would be like fallen angels, hopeless, helpless, and with no future but to experience forever God's eternal wrath. And yet, because Jesus was born, there is hope. Because he lived a perfect life and died on a cross as a substitute for the for all who would believe in him, paying the penalty of their sin. And because he rose again from the grave, and because he ascended to the right hand of the Father, 
And we know that one day he will return and set all things right because of all of these truths, because of what we celebrate at Christmas, we have hope. And so my encouragement to you this Christmas season is as you go shopping and you give gifts and you eat food and you enjoy celebrations and you listen to great holiday music, And maybe you even watch It's a Wonderful Life. Don't be distracted from the real reason we rejoice, not just this time of year, but every day of every year. The reason all of heaven rejoices, and one day we will join with them in that throng around the throne, singing forever and ever, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It is because God, very God, became a man, took on flesh, and died as a substitute for sinners so that through him we might be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of the truth of the incarnation. What a juxtaposition to consider the reality that there is no gospel for fallen angels, and yet there is a gospel for fallen men and women. And that good news is that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who could never earn salvation can have forgiveness, justification, adoption into your family, and the hope of eternal life. We have no fear in death because we have a mediator opens to us the throne room of grace. We're so grateful for that reality and we give all of the glory and honor to our Savior, praying these things in his name, amen.